Hi, this is bass player Nathan East, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. I'm very pleased to tell you that my band, Project Grand Slam, will be performing a benefit concert on Tuesday, August 17th in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, for Shakespeare and Company, a premier Shakespearean acting troupe. We'll be appearing in the Tina Packer Theater starting at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the area, please come out and see the band, and you'll be supporting a great cause. For tickets, just go to Shakespeare.org. My guest today is Alexander Zanchik, who I lovingly call the Bill Graham of Michigan. He is a concert promoter extraordinaire, and for all of you who may not know who Bill Graham was, he was the number one concert promoter in America in the 1960s and 70s with the Fillmore East and the Fillmore West. And Alexander is also a flutist, or a flautist, I'm not sure which one is correct, and a recording artist with a new album called Playing It Forward. Underneath this introduction is my song that's featured on this episode called Flat Busted from Spring Dance, my 2012 album with my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this song? Well, it's the only song I've ever recorded with a flute lead. And for Alexander Zanchik on the flute, I thought it was perfectly appropriate. And in the second half of this episode, we're going to do something that I absolutely love to do with my guests, my musical guests, and that is a song fest where we're going to play several songs, including one by Alexander and a couple by other artists. And we're going to listen to them and we're going to talk about them and you'll get the inside scoop and the inside story. It's so much fun. It's so different. And nobody else does this on podcasts. So Alexander Zanchik, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Robert. And I love this idea, by the way. I probably told you that. I love what you're doing with this show. I think it's it's all positive, and I love all the guests you've had. And uh, I, 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 you're, it was a very flattering intro, but uh, a lot of those things you talked about, I, I think you you relate to because you do the same things. You <laughs> you are you're very much an entrepreneur and 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 a very creative one. Well, I thank you for that. So, Alexander, I start off almost all my interviews by asking my guest, "What was your dream when you were young?" Mm -hmm. Oh, good one. Good one. Uh, uh, well, you know, if you can become what you dream, you're doing pretty good. And uh, certainly for me, uh, I would say around eight years old, uh, the guitar came into my life. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a rock and roll guitar guy. That's how I started my whole musical journey. See, I never knew that. 
Okay. Yeah. I only see you as the guy playing the flute. I didn't know you were a rock and roll guitar guy. I am. I am. Look, I, I got a rock and roll guitar right here. Here it comes. Look, <laughs> there's a rock and roll guitar right See, Is that a Stratomat Stratcaster? That's a lovely Strat. That's a 1985 Strat right there. Oh, well. But uh, I started out, uh, uh, Robert, with guitar. Uh, and, you know, we grew up downtown Windsor, Ontario, across from Detroit. Kind of downtown, poor family, you know, wealthy and all the right things. I mean, we had parents that loved us and everything, but we... We were down there and uh, some really cool music teacher uh, had this really interesting hustle where he would go from door to door and he would basically do uh, music IQ tests and let you know if your son was talented enough to take guitar lessons. Of course, nobody ever failed. In other and words, if the, if the check cleared that you were That's talented what, enough. Well, <laughs> he found out very quickly in our neighborhood that there were no checks. Uh, and okay, but, but really, the guitar started uh, eight years old and it was that... The classic dreams, loved, loved the Everly Brothers, loved the Ventures, loved the Shadows. I uh, grew up playing all those wonderful instrumental hits. And then by the time I was 13, 14 years old, and I think we can relate age-wise, I'm already playing the guitar in little, little local bands. And then the Beatles are on the Ed Sullivan show. And of course, the next day you wake up and you go, I, I, I want that. I want to be the, I want to be. I want to be George Harrison. You know, one of the guests that I've had on the show, Alex Forbes, who's a wonderful songwriter. We were talking about the Ed Sullivan show and having the Beatles on it. And we were talking about how earth shaking it was. And she said, yeah, she made the um, uh, allusion to the fact that in the Wizard of Oz, the point where the house falls on Dorothy and then all of a sudden she comes out of that situation and it's now in color. She said the <laughs> world was now in color. And I said that was a great analogy. Okay. Yeah. Well, it was very funny. The, the the Beatles performance on the Ed Sullivan show is to this day the worst prediction I ever made. I went back, I went to school the next day, and Mr. Ramsey, our music teacher, knowing that I'm the guitar guy, said to me, Well, Alex, did you see the Beatles last night? I goes, Yes, I did, Mr. Ramsey. And then he said, Well, what did you think? And I and I'm gonna quote now the worst prediction I ever made. I go, Mr. Ramsey, they're not going anywhere. That's what I said. <laughs> I think I was wrong. You know, you and 17 record companies said the same thing. So I did it out of jealousy. It <laughs> bothered me that so many girls in that audience wanted the Beatles. And at that age, I go, wait a minute, you know, but, but anyway, so that's the dream. The dream early on was always music. The flute story came along much later. I didn't start playing the flute till I was 21 years old. Really? Yeah. Okay. So in high school and all of that, you were playing guitar still? Guitar, guitar bands, you know, doing covers, uh, growing our hair, uh, all of the fun. It was really fun for, for poor kids in downtown Windsor. It opened up a whole social network for us, and it was a lot of fun. And my parents were very supportive. My father, who was wandering back and forth from Chicago at the time, bought me what he called with his, with his interesting English a beautiful gypsum guitar. It was a Gibson, <laughs> but we called it a gypsum. And so it was all guitar all through high school. Okay. So how did you make the change over to the flute? Uh, total serendipity. I, I, by the time I was about 20, 19, 20 years old, I had gone off to Toronto and I was working with a pretty well-established rock group that played clubs and everything, a band called Crosstown Traffic. And uh, I was the youngest guy in the band playing lead guitar and it was the classic rock experience of the late 60s. Uh, you know, the, the singer was, a, was an alcoholic. The drummer was a, the, the, uh, the keyboard player was a heroin addict. I mean, it was really the, the classic rock scene. And I kind of 
thought I was having a pretty good experience, came home to visit my parents. I'm around 20 now. And a guy on the street recognized me with the big fro that I had at the time, uh, recognized me as that Windsor guy who left and went to Toronto to play with Crosstown Traffic. And he came over to me and he had a hot flute that he had stolen from a high school. And he looked at me, he says, aren't you that guitar player? I goes, I am. And he said, would you like to buy a flute? That's how weird it was. And I said, you know, and my only reference to the flute at that point was Ian Anderson and, and Jethro Tull, of course. And I, I said, well, I kind of liked the way it looked in the case. And I said, how much do you want? He goes, 50 bucks. And I goes, well, I've only got $9. He goes, I'll take it. And that's how it started. <laughs> so I take this $9 flute and it changed my life. It literally, I became obsessed with this notion of learning how to play this. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, it is, is it flutist or flautist? And to answer that, uh, both of those are correct. And the, the, the joke in my business is the difference between a flutist and a flautist is $20 an hour. I mean, that's the difference. But, <laughs> but I, I became obsessed, Robert, with learning how to play that instrument. I had no natural aptitude for it. I was a rock and roll kid, not particularly cultured. There was not a lot of classical music in my family, but it changed my life. That hot flute, um, it changed. And uh, I would say about a year later, I auditioned for the University of Windsor Music Department in classical studies with a flute and an elementary book. I walked into that audition, and to this day, I don't understand why they accepted me, because it, it that was the next thing that really changed my life and introduced me to classical music. I started working with some of the, the great flute players from the Detroit Symphony, became very good friends with Irvin Monroe, the principal flute player, and, and my whole life changed. I still played guitar, still loved jazzy music, although I've never considered myself a jazz musician. So that's how the flute came into my life. Okay. I mean, that's really fascinating. And did you teach yourself or did you have a teacher when you switched over to flute? Uh, at the very beginning, I taught myself out of an elementary book, uh, the Rubank Elementary Flute Method, something that a kid in, 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 in elementary school would do. And when I auditioned with that book, they all looked at me like I was from another planet and said, you know, the prerequisite for university classical studies is not I bought a flute off a guy on the street. And here's <laughs> here's a little exercise from the Rubank book. But, you know, Robert, I will say this, uh, uh, because this is sometimes I think this is missing in our in, in our all of our experiences, especially the creative world. Those professors, one in particular, he was a great Hungarian clarinet player, Imra Rosnyai. Imre Rosen, I just recognized something. He just said, I think there's something going on with this kid. I, he's got such a passion for wanting to learn how to play this instrument. And they accepted me on a probationary level. And I was only allowed to that first semester. And by the end of that first semester, I was so obsessed with practicing 10 hours a day that I was already playing little recitals. And so it was, a, it was, it was a, quite a story. You know, it's interesting. I started out on the trumpet because my father played the trumpet and I played trumpet all throughout junior high and high school. And uh, of course, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, uh, as I've told this story before, suddenly the trumpet was not very cool. And I <laughs> took up the guitar. And the right. only reason I became a bass player is because the guys that were in my quote band at the time, what was my band? We all had acoustic guitars. We used to scotch tape a Norelco reel to reel uh, microphone tape recorder microphone <laughs> onto our guitar that made us an electric guitar. Oh, wow. The only reason I became a bass player is because they were struggling to learn the treble clef and I already knew it from the trumpet. So I said, okay, I'll learn how to play bass clef. 
Oh yeah. Well, isn't that funny in all the years that I've been interviewing musicians and I've done a lot of interviews, obviously a lot of times the instrument finds the player it's, it's, and it's a lot of this serendipity, just like you, where who like, like, like who knows that who knew that Gerald Albright, the great sax player is an amazing bass player. And, and who knew that uh, Warren Hill started out as a rocket. So we all have these little, musical journeys and and sometimes they take us down different different roads you're right and i had my nine dollar flute experience too because <laughs> i went into a pawn shop in 1974 i knew pawn, not I, porn uh, no pawn p-a-w-n <laughs> i don't think there was p-o-r-n at that time or at least we didn't know about it um, <laughs> but i went into a pawn shop and i saw a bass that the guy had on the wall. And I said, well, how much are you looking for for that? He said, $100. This was a Fender Precision Bass from 1960. Wow. Okay. Wow. It's worth thousands of dollars now, but I bought that for a hundred bucks Good and that became my instrument for so many years. I love those stories. Yeah, really exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of like finding old baseball cards now, you know, and you, you find one and it's worth a lot more than it was when it was in the package with the gum. Okay. Well, all I know is that that street, that crook on the street there, uh, it changed somebody's life. I mean, in my case, introduced me to the classical world. Eventually, uh, yeah, I still play. I still play guitar now in my show. I still drag my. Uh, I play an ES uh, Gibson ES three fifty five, like a BB King guitar, and uh, still like to pick it up. All I can do now is play loud blues because the flute is so demanding for me. It takes up so much of my time. But uh, but it's. Uh, uh, I, we're just so lucky to be getting away with this. I think you know that. <laughs> All right. So I want to hear the transition into your concert promotion career, because again, you are the key guy in Michigan. And I have to tell the audience that um, Alexander has been very kind to me and my band project grand slam. I've been in three of his uh, festivals or concerts, jazz on the river, shoreline jazz and rhythm and rhymes. He puts on a wonderful concert event you know you are the guy in that area and uh, tell us how you got into it and tell us what's happening now because of covid with all of that well i fell into it uh probably no different than the guitar no different than the flute you know i uh at one point after touring you know i toured for many years through the 80s uh into the early 90s before i signed with warner brothers i started making my first album came out in 1978 so I'm around 14, 14 records now, not counting what I did on some other people's records. But as I as I started to progress, I got into radio. I started to play festivals in the Michigan area, and I would offer up as much free advice as I could because I wanted these people to succeed. So if you take like Jazz on the River, which is one of the events you played, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. 25 years I've been doing that festival. It went from two or 300 people in a park to 25,000 people a day now. I mean, it's a huge event. And it all it did was, uh, Robert, it started with me out of my, my passion for wanting these events to be great events, just sharing my instincts with them and saying, you know what, guys, you really need to do the sound better. You should do this. You should call this guy. And every once in a while, some of these guys, being bright people, said, well, why don't you run this festival for us? You obviously know this stuff better than I do. So I fell into it. I now have 10 major events that I either run or I own. I still do radio in Detroit. I do talk radio. I have a, a weekly television show. So I fell into all of those things because the reality of our business is that the more diverse you can be without totally stepping out of your lane. I mean, for you, Robert, doing this podcast, it's not like you're you're selling water filters. I mean, you're this is music. <laughs> 
it's all music, right? And so I, I kind of, I, I started to love doing it. I loved hiring people like you and bringing in Project Grand Slam and other friends and, and bringing in all my bigger buddies, you know, Kenny G comes in and people Bryson. And, and so I fell into it and we're, we're good at it. Uh, and the reason we're good at it is because we're fine with making hardly any money at it. Because as you well know, in our business, if you think this is the business to get into, to get rich, uh, you know, I, I've got some, I've got some swamp water to sell you down in Florida. It's just not like that. As they say, that's why God created second jobs. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, so I fell into it. I love doing it. Some of the events have grown into major events. We love hanging out. And you know, here's the biggest advantage I have. And I, I don't, I don't mean this to be glib or cynical, but who's the first guy that I book on all of my festivals. You're looking at me and I book myself and I bring in special guests. And then I meet people like, like Robert Miller and Project Grand Slam. And I meet people like Lindsay Webster before anyone knows who she is and Nick Colleone. And it's as, as someone who's been doing this so long, uh, what a cool way to give back to, to basically use your instincts to create great events and then to showcase great talent. So we're having a ball with it. Uh, you asked a very good question as far as COVID goes. There's no question that when the pandemic hit, uh, I lost everything. And, 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 you know, we, uh, I've had this discussion with all of my musician friends. You and I have had this discussion. If you had a lot going on when the pandemic hit, like I always do, I have a lot going on. I've proactively created it for myself. Uh, it's not like I'm I'm a brilliant guy. I just I I like to think that you and I and a handful of us we just outwork people. <laughs> we work harder. <laughs> and I and I, I I our whole world disappeared. It was really quite frightening. It was like post traumatic stress disorder. The first couple of months were really rough. Uh, most of them are not coming back till 22, by the way, uh, of all of my events. They're still not coming back. In the meantime, new ones have come along. And and I, uh, the good news is none of them have disappeared. They've all been postponed. Michigan, like New York and like your area, we really got hit hard here with, with this pandemic. Well, musicians in general just got whacked by we this uh, COVID thing. We haven't played, my band hasn't played live since February 2020. Whoa. I'm so pleased to say that we finally have a, a gig coming up, a festival that we've played before. On June 27th, we're in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Good playing for you. Music Fest. Yeah. A spectacular event because it's against the backdrop of this old discarded steel mill that oh, nice. be the essence of what Bethlehem was about. But it's one of the few events that's still taking place in 2021. Um, I've heard the story again and again that. You know, people are trying to figure out, can they do it? Can they do it on some kind of basis, you know, with uh, remote and, and keeping people six feet apart and all of that? But it's, it's so hard. It's so well, but hard. But they are, they are coming back, though, Robert. In, in Michigan, uh, now everybody's looking at us like, well, wait a minute, we're opening up. Why don't you bring your events? These events are like big oil tankers. You can't just turn them right. around all of a sudden. So deciding in, at the beginning of June or the end of May that maybe we can do it is a little late, you know, but I've picked up a few new series. And personally, since the new record came out on a selfish note, it's been fun to put so much energy into my playing and into my, my own record. Cause you know, it, it's been very difficult the last 10 years, even longer to really put as much time and energy into the flute. The flute's a very, and I know all instruments are difficult, 
to, to play it on a world-class level, on any kind of a respectable level, takes such a commitment. So, so I've been having a lot of fun. We're, we're traveling. We're going to North Carolina this coming weekend. We're going to Chicago. We're playing Symphony Pops in Muskegon. I'm going out to L.A. to do a video. So uh, the You're same instincts. Busy. Yeah, and, you know, the same instincts that created these little empires for us. You know, when I when I talk with people like Dave Cause, who are, you know, you know what an what a empresario that guy is, you know. Whenever we talk now, it's always we joke about how we created our own empires and put ourselves in them. And those same instincts have allowed us to survive this pandemic and maybe even come out of it on the other side even even bigger. Well, you know, when you when you have misfortune, which is what COVID has been, it forces you to find a different path because yes. we're all on one path when everything is good. But when something like this happens, you got to find an alternate route. For me... I started to record on a remote basis, which is something I had never done before. And lo and behold, here it is. You know, I've I've recorded two new albums oh, during the you. course of the pandemic. They're different. Uh, ordinarily, I would be in the studio with my musicians and we would be improvising and jamming together and you would capture that live sound. You yeah. can't really do that remotely. So I had to figure out a different way of doing it. And I'm sure that's exactly what's happened with you and so many other musicians. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and what we look forward to is all these new instincts and, uh, you know, new website, hiring millennials to handle your your social, you know, because now all of a sudden we've got this big, this big Instagram, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, we've really done a lot of reinventing, but I. I Please tell me you're not going to do those stupid dance videos on TikTok, though, OK? Uh, no, uh, you don't want to see me dance. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. But it's going to be fun to to take the analog stuff and butt it up against all this new digital stuff, because my audience is unapologetically. And I know you know this. My audience is 50 to dead. That's my demographic. <laughs> and it's and it is conservatively 70 percent African-American. I mean, that's my demographic. I wouldn't have a career without that audience. And they are very analog. They want a phone number to call. They want to get you on the phone. So I've, I've got a wonderful connection with my my audience. So I, I, this digital world is not going to allow me to get away from that. But I got to admit, I've been having fun. This is the first album I've ever released on my own. You know, I've always been with labels, Warner Brothers, Concord, Heads Up, Optimism, Inner City. Because of COVID, I had the time to turn highfalutin music into my label. And so, uh, so you know, there's like you alluded to, Challenging times like this challenge us, and out of those challenges come a whole lot of new instincts and, and new things. I think I think we're all going to come out of this uh, better. And one thing for sure, and and you talked about it too. Tell me, it's not the coolest thing in the world. Uh, I've been lucky. I've played a lot of concerts in the last year. Uh, boy, we don't take that for granted anymore. No, we absolutely don't. Well, listen, I, as I've said at the beginning here, Alexander is the concert promoter extraordinaire in Michigan. And uh, I look forward to playing at more of your festivals Will. going down the road for sure. I want to move now to that Songfest side of our interview, because this is this is the fun part. Nobody else does these kinds of things on a podcast. And I can only do it with really cool musicians like you. So, you know, the flute is an interesting instrument in the sense that not only is it difficult to play, as you pointed out, but certainly in rock and roll, you don't find a lot of flute players. Probably the, the guy that made the flute into the instrument that it is today in rock and roll is Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. 
Uh I got to tell you a little story. And we're going to start playing now Bourree, which is uh, on the first Jethro Tull album. It's his version of a Bach song, just brilliantly conceived between the flute and the bass and, and the entire band and how they went. They took the melody and then they went into a little jam kind of thing in the middle of it. Just brilliant. I mean, and this is in the mid-60s that they were doing this kind of thing. So here's my little story. Uh, a week before Woodstock, you know, the original Woodstock, the one that had 10 million people that claimed <laughs> to have enough. been there. I was up in the same area as uh, the festival was going to be taking place. I was playing at a hotel. I was in the show band at the hotel. And the week before, I get invited to go to a bungalow colony, which is just a bunch of little you know, houses that people would rent out for the summer. And they had a trailer. And somebody said to me, you're going to hear a concert, go to the trailer. Well, I go to the bungalow colony, and in the trailer is Jethro Tull. Oh, wow. And there's about five of us in the audience in a trailer. And, Je- and Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull put on a two-hour show as if they were playing Madison Square Garden or uh, the festival at Woodstock. It didn't wow. make a difference. And I learned something from that. It doesn't make a difference what size your audience is or where you're playing. You put out 100% Absolutely. effort when Absolutely. you're playing. Yeah. Well, so that's my Jethro story. Tull story. Why it's a great Jethro Tull. My Jethro Tull story is hearing them for the first time before I even played the flute. And I'm a rock and roll guitar player. And we had a famous place here in Detroit called the Grandy Ballroom. And the Grandy Ballroom was in the 60s, uh, going into the early 70s. It was the place where all of these bands were showcased. And it's where I heard Blood, Sweat and Tears the first week that David Clayton Thomas joined the band. It's where I heard Blind Faith. It's where I heard everybody we heard. I go to see a double bill. It's Jethro Tull headlining with Chicago Transit Authority opening up for them when Terry Kath was still in the band. And I don't know anything about the bands. A lot of these bands, when you went to the Grandy, they had not taken off yet. They were playing these big showcase bars. And of course, the whole place was on hallucinogenics. The whole place is, I mean, it was just a wild scene. Most of the bands in an hour and a half might play three songs. You know, it was just the whole classic. It was a little bit like a bungalow colony, <laughs> but uh, but it was uh, changed. I mean, to see Ian Anderson in particular, and the way he commanded that stage and to see the flute and the idea that he brought it, you know, it's one thing to play the flute in jazz. It's another thing, uh, an an obvious thing to play it in the classical world. We kind of get that, but to front a band like that with that kind of an instrument and to do all of that stuff he did, his very unique overblowing and screaming and yelling into the flute, standing on one leg, I got to tell you, it was life-changing. It really was. Standing on one leg thing is something I never understood. How he could possibly do it and play as well as he did. He looked like somebody out of a Fagin. It was was almost like he was out of a movie. You know what I mean? Uh, But you know what? You hit on someone. uh, How genius at that time to take 
a little box you know, from a suite, take one of the movements, which is that bourree, a simple little bourree. Ba -da 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 -da. I mean, and then that nice walking bass, just like you said, that really was genius. I thought Jethro Tull and the sophistication of that music, you know, at one point they went from being obscure to arguably being the number one, number two rock band in the world. I mean, they were, they were, they were that big. Now, is he a legitimate flute player? Do I relate to him like I do James Galway or Jean-Pierre Rampal or Hubert Laws? Of course I don't. But I totally admire the, the messenger that he became for that instrument. Uh, to the point that, as you know, I put a Jethro Tull song on my, on my new project. Right. You mentioned that to me. And I think that that's very, very cool to keep that legacy alive. Yeah. Well, okay. you're, you're used to doing that with all your cool covers. With yeah, your well... You know what? I kind of feel the same way. I grew up with a certain kind of music. It's in my bones, and I wanted to keep it alive and do something interesting with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, we're going to go to the second song now. And I chose the song Hijack by Herbie Mann, whose real name was Herbert J. Solomon, but his <laughs> professional name was Herbie Mann. And uh, Hijack was recorded in 1974. It became his only number one hit on Billboard. It was a Billboard number one dance hit in 1975. And you're hearing it now underneath this little introduction. I mean, it's a funky little tune. It's got that R&B thing going. And then, you know, eventually he comes in with the melody. I think it's a great song. Well, Herbie, and, and, and you know, before we started your podcast today, we talked about the fact that I got to know him. I was a big fan. One of my one of my most popular songs that I play live uh, was on one of my Warner Brothers records. It was a cover of Memphis Underground, which was one of his great records. But Herbie was just, first of all, if you look in a dictionary under chutzpah, <laughs> there's a picture of Herbie Mann. That guy had more personality. I love that guy. And he was so Brooklyn. I got to know him a little bit. He 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 was a real innovator, uh, and and for lack of a better description, and I think a certain age group's going to relate to this. He was a beatnik. He was a bit of a beatnik. This cool dude always had his shirt undone. Right. He had that goatee no, you know, kind of thing going too. Oh yeah, the goatee. Yeah, such a cool guy. Very brilliant though. A brilliant musician. I was lucky to know him. Played a few concerts with him. Uh, learned a lot from Herbie. Herbie was, and 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 not restricted by any notion of jazz, pop. You know, that none of that meant anything to him. He did covers. He did funk. He was innovative. He did Latin music. You know, everybody everybody gives like Stan Getz all the credit for bringing bossa nova to America. For heaven's sakes, Herbie was playing bossa nova long before uh, Getz was. Herbie Mann was. Uh, one of the greats. There's no, not even a question, but I'm so glad you played that track. And he did stuff like Superman, you know, he did a discotheque record. 
And then in between it all, great song like like Memphis Underground is brilliant, you yeah. know. So uh, uh, what a great choice. Uh, 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 definitely an influence for sure on me. He had another song that was recorded live called "Coming Home, Baby," that I always yes, loved. Yes, of course. Um, and again, you know, when they live when at the guys, Village Gate. Exactly. There's so many great albums that were recorded in the '60s that were live albums, and you hear the people, you know, tinkling the glasses and the waiters moving around the room, and it didn't make a difference because that was part of the atmosphere that was created on the stage. It would. It was all there, you know. We, nobody was worried about the fact that there was a, a glass tinkling in the background or something. Made it very cool. No, and, and uh, the and that album that you're talking about, live at the Village Gate, uh, was a huge success. College kids latched onto it. They found it so hip. Do you know on the whole album there's only three tracks? There's only three songs. There's coming home, baby. Uh, it ain't necessarily so. And I'm trying to think of what the what the third song is and the guy playing vibraphones on coming home baby it was a canadian a guy named uh, uh hey good hardy and so uh that album really resonated for me he was just a cool dude loved to bust your chops by the way you know he was oh, always really? busting we were playing a live concert one herbie man and i and i surprised him i had a 30-piece flute choir walk out when we started memphis underground you know so i got 30 students <laughs> playing that melody Tada. And at one point in the middle of the con of the song, before a live audience, Herbie looked at me and he says, and I quote, let's play it on our knees. And we both get down on our knees. And I, <laughs> Why are we on our knees? Because Herbie Mann said, let's do it. Uh, what an amazing guy. Uh, you, you, that's, that's a great, that was a great uh, uh, story for me. So that's cool. Okay, we're going to go to our third and final song. And of course, I had to choose one of Alexander's songs for this. He's got on his new album, Playing It Forward, he's got a song called Motor City Sway, which um, I kind of think is almost like the heir apparent to Hijack because it's got that kind of funky thing going on. You got that video with everybody dancing to it. You know, tell us a little bit about that song and about how the video came to be. And, you know, it just got a great little groove to it. Well, you know, uh, I'm I, I'm lucky for a lot of reasons. And in, in the musical world, I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of my heroes and, 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 and beyond that, gotten to play with them. Like I mentioned, performing with Herbie Mann, touring with Bob James many years ago. I, that was a huge thing for me. One of my dear friends, on this new record, there are two major producers. There's Jeff Lorber, who's obviously a legend, uh, and, and we've had a friendship for many years, and my friend James Lloyd from Pieces of a Dream. And James Lloyd is just this inventive, funky guy who, when I was putting this record together, Jeff Lorber produced 10 of the 11 tracks, and, and I said to James Lloyd, James, it's not right that I don't have a song of yours on my new record. James Lloyd wrote Sweat For Me, uh, from my Seldom Blues CD. James Lloyd wrote River Raisin Nights on my Doing the D CD. So James Lloyd sends me this flat out funky song. He, and it's funny, there's a connection with Memphis Underground with Herbie Mann. Every time James Lloyd would come in and do a show with me, in the middle of my show, we would play Memphis Underground with this dance groove and a thousand people would get up and start line dancing. And so recognizing that, James Lloyd said, I'm gonna write you a flat out Motor City Motown inspired funky song, dance song. And he wrote Motor City Sway, which by the way, went through a lot of names. It started out being Smooth Sway. And then I said, well, we got to put Motor City in it. So I heard it. 
It was a little different for a smooth jazz anything, but I said, I want that on my record. I love the sound and everything. So we recorded it. We put uh, the, a young, uh, at that time, 12-year-old genius keyboard player, Justin Schultz, to do a talk box solo on it. And he's in the video doing the talk box. James Lloyd is in the video. And then all of a sudden, here comes COVID. I got this, I was getting all ready to do this dance video all over Detroit because uh, I wanted to I wanted to showcase Detroit because it's my favorite city in the whole world. And I will argue with you in New York and I'll argue with my LA friends that Detroit is the greatest music city in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And as far as a lot of people are concerned. So I wanted to do a video that showcased the whole city. And all of a sudden COVID comes not even sure if I should release the record. And I go, let's do it. And let's do something that really brings people out. And if you look in there, they're all socially distanced. They're wearing masks. And I got to tell you, Robert, the video and the song blew up. We recorded it. Uh, one of the scenes was in front of Hitsville, USA, the, the famous the Motown, Motown office. And uh, there we are on the lawn in the middle of COVID with people with masks on doing the Motor City Sway. A guy shows up and does a live stream video of us recording the video. And in no time at all, it has a half a million views. I mean, that's how the nerve that it hit. And, and besides the song, the magic in that video is seeing people, young, old, white, black, all around this beautiful city, outdoors, middle of COVID dancing. It, it really was. So um, I will say to date, and by the way, I just put the video together. I, I'm lucky enough to do a weekly television show. I called my TV crew. I felt like Martin Scorsese when that was over. I said, <laughs> I can't believe we made this video. And, and I'm so happy that it lifted people's spirits. So I, I appreciate you playing it. Well, it's a good song. It's a good video. And uh, again, it kind of shows all the different sides of Alexander Zanjic because you are really something else between the music and the concerts and everything else. You are an entrepreneur and it's been so much fun and really great experience for me to get to know you. So I want to thank you for being a guest on the uh, podcast here. And uh, now what we're going to do is we're going to hear again, the song that I played at the beginning of this episode. It's my song called flat busted, which features a flute on the lead from spring dance. And uh, thank you so much. Hope you enjoy it. And we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Thank you.